Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's April 11th, the new show. And this week has just been, I find, bizarre with some of the things that are going on in the world. So we're going to talk about some of that. It's just been a bothersome, weird week. But before I start talking about what's going on in the world, I want to talk about some legal stuff, career stuff. This week, I went to go see Jerry Shargell. He is uh, my real mentor in the field. My second job I ever had in my life, I started working for him in my late 20s into my early 30s, and I learned pretty much much of the trial skills that I have today. I learned from Jerry and, and other skills and knowledge that you need to succeed as a defense lawyer in this field. And Jerry's in, in, in bad health right now, which is, is rough for me. It's rough for his family and friends. This was, you know, is the smartest lawyer that I, I've ever known. And I think I've said that before on the podcast, just an incredibly smart guy, not just as a trial lawyer, but also as an appellate lawyer. No one knew more law than Jerry. No one knew more anything than Jerry. And I think about how the work is in this field, how brutal it is. And I don't know that the average person understands you have to do this work for a living to really appreciate how difficult it is and how it can really affect your health. You're in a field where the work is not just difficult, the high level of difficulty and, and patience and energy that's required to go into it. It's also emotionally hard. The stress is really extreme. You're often dealing with clients who are not necessarily the most rational of people. And it's, you know, part because of who they are. You know, they've gotten to this situation in life sometimes for all sorts of reasons that are not what we see in regular society. In addition, the stress of being under an indictment or the pressure of potentially going to jail or even in death penalty cases of possibly being put to death makes them crazy. And You've also got prosecutors who are looking to do anything they can to indict you, to entrap you, to harm you. They don't want you to win. They don't want you to breathe. If you do high-profile work like I do, you'll have stalkers who show up in court, your office, your home. I mean, there's crazy people that are out there. They're all over the place. And again, the average person doesn't really run into some of the lunatics that you do when you do this kind of work in a high-profile manner. They're just all over the place. And the way the work is, it's 24-7. It's not just you go to a job and you come home and you sit on your couch and, and watch cartoons. The hours are really long. I work on nearly every weekend I'm working, for sure. I'm reachable on the weekends from clients. They call me 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. I answer the phone. I'm just used to it. I don't know that it's right or that I should be doing it, but you just do it because in your mind, if you're a defense lawyer, you figure if they're calling you, you know, they're facing serious stuff, potentially going to prison. So they're freaking out. And if they're freaking out, you can take a phone call. It's not going to kill you. So it's important that your defense lawyer is uh, reachable at all times. And Jerry worked on every weekend, every weekend uh, that I can remember whenever I spent the weekends with him, he was always working. It didn't mean that we didn't have some laughs because we did. We always laughed when we were together, but he always was working. He didn't sleep much, much like me. And it's hard to sleep sometimes with the stress of the work. You know, the pressure is just constant. 
it's not like you can just do your job half-assed when you're a trial lawyer either, because if you do it half-assed, you've got really smart judges who are there, are there to make sure that the work is done correctly, and they'll slap you around if you're unprepared. You have clients who aren't always the most patient or realistic, so you've got to do the massive amount of work and get the best possible result you can. You've also got society hating your guts for representing people who they think are guilty. They just pass massive judgment. It's kind of hilarious when you see the things that the emails that I get. Uh, there's so many judgmental people. God knows if you could look uh, under there, maybe in their, their computer searches or their Google searches and see what they're involved in. You see what their life is about. Criminal records, uh, stealing, thieving, lying. It's the same, you know. This is the type of people that are constantly judging you. And there's a lot of pressure because people get angry. You represent somebody high profile, and if someone dares to think that, you know, that person shouldn't even get a trial, you know, they want to kill you. You'll get uh, 20 hate mails. You'll get death threats. God forbid you represent somebody who, uh, somebody in society anonymously, of course, behind the computer screen. They'll never come to your face and actually do it because, you know, at bottom, they're cowards. So it is such a beautiful picture that I've painted. You're sitting there thinking, well, why, why is this guy doing this kind of work? I mean, what's the point of it? Why do, why do any of us do it? It's not like I couldn't be successful in another area of law. Of course I could be. There's no other area of law that really makes me excited, though. I mean, this is the area, the only area for me that I really love, I care about. But when you're in this kind of work, when you're a defense lawyer, you have an incredibly fortunate position to be in because you have the power, the ability, the opportunity to save someone's life. And that's a pretty amazing feeling. People come to you and they're, you know, they're handing you their lives. And to be able to do that, to save them while the whole world is watching, the pressure is enormous. But to succeed at it, there's not a better feeling in the world. Money isn't uh, what drives you when you do this kind of work, because you can make more money doing other things. It's incredibly satisfying to change someone's history to save their lives. It's amazing. So back to Jerry, also the, the funniest lawyer really ever. He, he was just hilarious. I mean, I recognized very early on when working for Jerry that sense of humor is hugely important for a trial lawyer. You need to make the jury laugh. Because if you can make them laugh, if the jury laughs with you, when they're in the back voting on your case, they're more likely to agree with you if they like you, if, if they have an affinity for you. Jerry was always funny in front of a jury. I mean, just very funny. Usually intentionally, he had the same jokes that he used at the same points in trials that every time was funny, even though I had seen it 600 times. Sometimes his humor was, was not uh, intentional. His best humor was, though, was spontaneous humor. And you've got to have that type of, uh, of ability to think on your feet, make people laugh on your feet. It's important. He used to take off his reading glasses when he sometimes had to read something, these giant reading glasses. And he did it with a great flourish in front of the jury. And everybody laughed. And I swear, the first time I saw it, I laughed. The second time he did it, the fifth, the tenth, it was always funny. He was sarcastic, but he wasn't cruel to the cooperating witnesses, which is something I wish I could be more like, but I don't really have that in me. I tend to be sarcastic and mean, 
and cruel at times because I hate them. You know, usually the, after all the witnesses are oftentimes killers who are testifying in order to get out of jail quickly. And uh, if you treat them delicately, in my mind, they need to be treated like animals. And that's usually what I do. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it's not so good. When you think of one story that uh, I told uh, Jerry's wife this week when I saw her during a death penalty federal case in 1999, January of 1999 in federal court in Brooklyn. And we were representing the owner of the city gas gas stations, like 50 stations, and he was charged, amongst other things, with murder. The trial was just brutal. I mean, just the stakes were so high, death penalty case. The amount of work that we did on the uh, cooperators was just enormous. It was one of the reasons that I went out on my own, because I wanted to start using all the material that I had created for Jerry over the years, the impeachment material. I wanted to use it myself instead of just watching it. So Jerry is just doing the best he possibly could, just killing all the witnesses. And he's very elegant in the courtroom, dressed perfectly, and just, you know, really nothing stressed Jerry out during a trial, nothing. Very, you know, he's a delicate genius, though. His, his clothes, everything was pressed perfectly. One time during a trial, a prosecutor walked up to him and said, Jerry, you've got a crease in the back of your, your suit jacket. And that was the only time I ever saw him thrown during a trial. He was so upset that there was a wrinkle in the back of his suit. That's how, how Jerry was. So anyway, he's, he's examining these witnesses and I'm, I'm looking and I see that one of the jurors is looking a little green and just not looking at us and looking a little green and sort of making some faces. And I'm watching from across the courtroom. Jerry's doing his thing. He's not watching the jury. He's watching the witness that he's examining. And I'm, I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, I see the juror just puke, like projectile vomiting, right kind of at Jerry. She was in the front row of the two-row jury box, and she just bleh, pukes. Jerry sees it and immediately like does like cartoon recoiling, because... You know, look, you can do a lot of things to Jerry, but you cannot vomit on his shoes. I mean, those are like, you know, $2,000 pair of shoes that, you know, the elves uh, were flown in from Ireland uh, to make and put by the side of his bed uh, when he woke up in the morning. You know, Jerry always had to have the best, the clothing, the shoes, the cars, the, the phones. It was hilarious, the watches. But he didn't want his shoes to have puke on it. I can certainly understand that. So he's recoiling and jumps back. And I watched this happen. This was in January, I believe, of 1999, possibly February of 1999. And this is what I see. I see this, and I remember like it was yesterday. So uh, the vomit is in the air, and Jerry is also in the air, you know, moving. As the vomit's moving towards him, he's moving back in the air to avoid the vomit. And in the middle of his jump back, you could see a light bulb go on over his head. And he realized this is a perfect opportunity to curry some favor with the jury. Because when you're a defense lawyer, especially in a death penalty case, you'll, you want to do anything you can to curry favor, to, to influence the jury. And you don't get many opportunities. So you could see the light bulb go off on above Jerry's head, and you realize this is his chance. While he's in midair, 
while he's in midair, he pulls out his handkerchief that's in his pocket. And I, you know, when I'm on trial, I have sometimes up to two handkerchiefs in my pocket because you get a little worked up there and you got to, you got to wipe down a little bit. Anyway, Jerry's got his handkerchief out and he like can reverse his momentum in air. It was like the magic bullet that killed Kennedy, you know, that Oswald fired the single bullet theory, like went straight, then it made a left then it made another right, went into governor Connolly, then ended up inside uh, Kennedy. So he reverses himself midair, has his handkerchief out, lands right in front of the juror and like bows with his handkerchief out, offering the handkerchief to the vomiting, embarrassed juror. And I remember thinking, man, that guy is really laying it on the line. He is really making a sacrifice. He risked getting that puke on his shoes. But that's the kind of guy Jerry was. It was all done in one smooth movement. And now it's been, what, 23 years later? And I look back on that day and I still laugh. And, you know, in terms of, of being spontaneously funny, look, you're either funny or you're not. Many defense lawyers aren't funny and many defense lawyers suck. The best ones are the funniest ones. La Rosa is very funny. Jimmy LaRosa also, you know, along with, with Jerry, the, probably the funniest other lawyer that I knew. And, you know, you sometimes have to do this stuff spontaneously. You can't write jokes when you're cross-examining somebody because you don't know what's going to happen. So I'll give you an example during the, the Gotti Jr. trial. This is now probably August of, nine, of 2005, excuse me. And uh, I'm about to cross-examine the first government witness in the case, which was Frank Fappiano. He was a Gambino family soldier who became a cooperator. And I had a ton of impeachment material on him, but, you know, it was important to set the tone in the trial with the first witness. And the one thing you know as a defense lawyer is that the cooperators should not be housed together. Everybody knows that. You don't want to house them together if you're the government, because then they're going to get their story straight. And you don't want that to happen because they will, you know, the defense lawyer will be able to use that for impeachment. Like, how do you know that the material that you're testifying about, the information that you're saying isn't coming from the other cooperator who's in the cell next to you? So they keep these guys separate and apart so that their testimony is not contaminated. And uh, it's important that they don't receive any other extra information about the case. They're not allowed to read the newspapers because, again, they don't want to. The government does not want the cooperators to be able to color their testimony in any way or at least be perceived as if they are. So one of my main themes in the in my opening statement in the Gotti trial was the fact that many of the government's witnesses were extremely close to Sammy Gravano, who was the high-profile cooperating witness who had helped convict John Jr.'s father just a few years earlier. And Gravano had admitted to pled guilty to 19 murders and received a ridiculously low sentence of five years and pretended to turn over a new leaf, blah, blah, blah. My argument was that these cooperators were the sons of Sammy, you know, a play on the son of Sam criminal, the sons of Sammy who were just as dishonest and manipulative as Sammy Gravano and that they were well-schooled by him in lying to prosecutors, judges, and juries. And I had a completely spontaneous bit of cross-examination with Frank Fapiano. I had done so much work to prepare to make sure that it was done perfectly. But 
things arise during cross, spontaneous things, and you better be prepared for it. You better not let that opportunity go. Because if you let it go, you, it could cost you the trial. So he, another cooperator in the case was one of his Gambino family friends, co-conspirators named Joey D'Angelo. And D'Angelo had cooperated right before the trial started, like a couple of weeks before. And I had to cross-examine him as well in the case. But he and Fapiano were very close. So we're talking about this murder. And this is, I'm going to give you the question and answer. I'm going to read it to you. Let's see if this works out. Question. This is to Frank Fapiano. You, Sammy, and Joey D'Angelo were the main people involved in this murder. Answer, yes. All of Sammy's guys? Answer, yes. And you and Joey D'Angelo and Gravano were all cooperators now, correct? Answer, Sammy, Joe, and myself, yes. Well, how do you know that Joey D'Angelo was a cooperator? So what I did is, I'm just going to interrupt now, what I did is I sort of laid a little trap. How would he know that Joey D'Angelo was cooperating? He just started cooperating two weeks before the trial. But I wanted to see if he knew and, you know, and go take it from there and, and see what I could get out of him. And he fell for it, of course, because he wasn't prepared for this by the government prosecutors. Question, how do you know Joe D'Angelo was a cooperator? Answer, because he was a co-defendant in this case. I don't see him sitting here anymore. So now he's claiming that the way he found out about Joey D'Angelo cooperating is because he's not in the courtroom. The guy couldn't have taken a guilty plea? You know, Fapiano's lying, obviously. Question, how do you know he didn't plead guilty? This is, again, all spontaneous, but you got to think fast. Answer, I heard from people that in the news that he was cooperating. Okay, so now the answer is first that I don't see him in the courtroom. Now, when he realizes that he's been caught, he's claiming that he heard about it in the news. Question, you were watching the news about this case? Answer, it came on in, on CNN in prison. Question, you were watching it? Answer, I happened to come in and seen it. Question, you came in one day and seen it. When? Answer, I don't remember. A week ago, maybe? Question, you have cable TV where you are? Answer, some channels, yes. Question, you're allowed to watch all the news channel or just some of the news channels? Answer, you can get a handful of them. Question, you got CNN though, huh? Answer, yes. That is how I found out about it. Question, what did the news reports say? It was only a week ago that he cooperated. Answer, I don't remember what it said. A cooperator in another, another cooperator in the Gotti case was cooperating. Question, did it say anything else? Or just mention his name? Answer, that was it. It was quick. Question, do you remember who the reporter was? Answer, no. Question, what he or she looked like? Answer, no. It came on the bottom of the screen. Question, Joey D'Angelo's name came on the crawler of the screen of CNN? You know, that little ticker tape on the bottom with, with news updates. Answer, yes. Question, like after the baseball scores? Answer, there was a ticker tape on the bottom. I don't remember how it came off. Question, you didn't actually see a newscast. You just read the zipper, the crawler at the bottom of the screen? Answer, yes. Question, the Pope is shot, the Mets beat the Braves 5-3, to three, and Joey D'Angelo flips in the Gotti case. Something like that? Yes, something like that. Question, you're telling the truth now, huh? Answer, yes, I am. 
That was one of uh, completely devastating uh, pieces of cross against uh, Frank Fabiano. Obviously, he was lying. Obviously, he was learning information about the case, which he shouldn't have. He tried to hide it. He tried to lie about it, claimed uh, anything he could to try to show that he wasn't getting information from the agents, from the prosecutors, from the outside. And an effective, spontaneous cross-examination, that's how it really started. And it was you know downhill from there. And 23 days of trial later, John Gotti Jr. walked out of jail. Now, let me uh, change subjects a little bit and go to something that's been bothering me for the last couple of days. It's just driving me nuts. And it's completely unrelated to anything in the law. And I'm sorry that I'm bringing this up. I'm sorry, but I've got to tell someone. uh, So I'm going to tell you. This designated hitter rule that's now being implemented in the National League, it is driving me crazy. Now, I don't know how many real baseball fans are out there, but I'm a National League baseball fan. I have been for my entire life. I'm a Dodgers fan since I'm probably seven years old, Mets as well. And I've been watching every game pretty much with the pitcher batting ninth. As a fan, there's a lot of strategy in play, knowing that once you get to the ninth spot in the lineup, that the pitcher has to hit, and the pitchers never hit well. So you have like a, a dead space in the lineup, and oftentimes what you're doing, if you were on defense, if you're pitching, is you try to just get to the ninth spot, because then you can get an automatic out there. It also requires the offense to consider things like sacrifice bunts by the pitcher, Using a pinch hitter, what if the pitcher is doing well, but you need a hitter in that spot really bad? If the game is close, sometimes you got to pull them for a pinch hitter earlier than you want. Intentional walks are involved. All these things come into play. They're all gone now for the most part instead of uh, just uh, the batting lineup being linear, being a straight line from one to nine, from strong to weak. The lineup is now just a buzzsaw. It's circular. Every hitter is good. There's like no breaks in between. And I know that you're thinking, this guy just talked about the Gotti trial. Uh, What? Look, the shit bothers me. And it's completely changed the game for me. Why change things in the National League after 150 years? Bothers me. And it bothers me because the players union is what did it. They wanted an extra job. What is there? You know, 15 teams in the National League? 16 teams? So that's 16 extra jobs. They completely destroyed the purity of National League Baseball because of 16 jobs. And it's the same reason why we've got the extra innings when games are tied after nine innings. Now they put a a, a base runner on second base to start out the 10th inning. It's just so that the games can get done quicker, that they don't stretch too long, solely so that the players can get paid the same amount of money and work less. And it's disgraceful. Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest. I know it doesn't really belong in uh, the chronology of what I'm doing here, but, you know, sorry. Now, let me talk about other things that were in the news this week that make me nuts. And what should have been on the front page of every newspaper in the world, in the world, was not. So I'm going to tell you because you probably missed it. We're at a time in the world, I'm going to give you some background, we're at a time in the world where Iran is committing terrorism all over the globe. Now, I'm not going to give you the the full background, but I'm going to give you just the highlights. In Yemen, they pay terrorists to kill our allies, the Saudis. In uh, the Palestinian territories, they pay Muslim terrorists, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, to kill Israelis. In Syria, they help the president, Assad, kill and gas his own people. In Lebanon, 
a country which Iran is now bankrupted financially uh, and morally too, I suppose. They pay the Muslim terror group Hezbollah to kill the country's prime minister, kill Israelis, and help Assad kill his own people in Syria. A few months ago, Iran also paid militants in Iraq to try to kill the prime minister of Iraq. These Iranian paid terrorists in Iraq, uh, they've attacked Americans at army bases there with some regularity with missiles. Iran also uh, pays terrorists all over the globe to commit all kinds of mayhem. They pay the terrorists in Bahrain to try to overthrow that government. They, they're kidnapping and killing dissidents anywhere, not just in Iran. They tried to kill the Saudi ambassador in a D.C. restaurant. Their leadership denies the Holocaust. They abduct foreign nationals when they come to visit Iran, and they charge them on these fake charges and then use them for negotiations with those people's countries. Iran's Revolutionary Guard, which is the terror group within the terror state, is responsible for killing and maiming hundreds of Americans in Iraq, troops in Iraq. For hostage-taking alone, there are more than a million, excuse me, a billion and a half dollars in unpaid judgments for punitive damages against Iran. Now, again, I'm not here to give you a, a geopolitical lesson on this today. I'm here to ask you the following. At a time when Iran is, is purportedly on its best behavior in an effort to get back the 2015 nukes deal with America and Europe, at a time they should be attempting to show America that they are not the worst cancer terror state since Nazi Germany, and at a time we should be completely and utterly on guard against their really nefarious terrorism, here's the story that came out this week. So that was a lot of buildup for this. Four Secret Service agents were involved in a bribery scheme carried out by two men that were arrested in D.C. who were living around the corner from the White House, pretending to be Department of Homeland Security law enforcement agents. True story. The two men spent 18 months living in this luxury apartment building in D.C., as I said, not far from the White House, posing as federal agents. The two men successfully ingratiated themselves with Secret Service agents. The Secret Service. Two of them were reportedly, two of the agents were reportedly given uh, rent-free penthouses, multiple bedroom luxury apartments, as well as high-end electronics and policing equipment. The free rent in the apartments was like $40,000 a year for just one of the apartments. What wasn't even paid. So it's not only did they give these apartments to the Secret Service, but nobody even paid the rent. And the building didn't do anything about it because they were tricked as well. They tricked the, this D.C. apartment building and its residents into thinking they were working for the government. And they didn't even ask for the rent. Now, inside this building, who lived there well, several law enforcement employees, including many Secret Service agents, Homeland Security employees, and they were all convinced that these two men were working for the government. The police department in D.C. fell for it as well. When someone called the police and said that they saw firearms in one of the two men's apartments, the police came and questioned them, and somehow the two men convinced these idiot cops that they were real government employees. No check was done to verify this. It's almost hard to believe. But here's the rub. Okay, here's, here's the big finish. The two men who were arrested were Muslims who had visas with travel to Iran and Pakistan 
like our biggest enemy. After they were arrested, one of the two men claimed he had contact with Pakistan's intelligence agency. It's like the CIA over here. None of this was a red flag, apparently, to all the people involved. The Metro Police in D.C., other Secret Service agents, the building, everybody fell for it. And it gets worse. It gets worse, if you can believe. One of the Secret Service agents who was involved in the bribery scheme was an agent assigned to Jill Biden, the First Lady's protective detail. Another was a uniformed division officer at the White House, worked in the White House. Another Secret Service agent was assigned to President Biden. He, he was one of those agents that accompany the president everywhere he goes and stands by his side during the most sensitive discussions and private moments. A second uh, officer caught up in the scheme was assigned to uh, protect Kamala Harris's residence, the vice president. One of the arrested uh, men offered to give an assault rifle worth $2,000 to the Secret Service agent who was assigned to Jill Biden. One of the men lent what he described as a government vehicle to that same Secret Service agent's wife and also gave her a generator. Nobody thought twice about this. They just thought this was normal. And nobody reported it. Nobody reported it. Found inside these two men's apartments were guns with high-capacity magazines, a fully automatic rifle. They showed, these two men showed residents of the building their weapons. Also found in their apartment was a drone, a bulletproof body armor, gas masks, zip ties, handheld radios, body cameras, binoculars, a high-powered telescope, laptop computers. They also discovered what appeared to be official Homeland Security patches and training manuals, scopes for weapons, components of disassembled rifles, and a list of every resident of the apartment complex. It's just like almost hard to believe. Among other items found uh, in the search of the two men's apartments was a binder with information on residents in the buildings, which included, as I said, many real federal agents that were working for the White House, congressional aides, government advisors. You know, as I said, the building where these two criminals lived believed they were federal agents. And the building management provided these two men with access to surveillance cameras inside the building, including the codes to access all doors in the building and a list of personal information about the residents. This actually happened. And it's barely made the news. Does any of this tell you how lame the FBI is? They, they couldn't pick up on this? They basically let the Revolutionary Guard, I have no doubt that obviously Iran, their terrorists were involved in this, they gave them access to the White House. I mean, it's just, it's, it should be the hugest story. But of course, the press mainly tries to cover up uh, for this administration. It's, it's almost hard to believe. This, our intelligence agencies missed this. How unprepared are we for any kind of real threat? We let two Muslim men, and, and look, this is not, I'm not just being racist here. I'm just profiling. You've got Muslim men with visas uh, to Pakistan and Iran, and they worm their way into the White House, into the people that are protecting the president. They worm their way into the Secret Service. 
and nobody nobody saw any red flag. We're so concerned about equality and equity. We've scared the crap out of anyone who dares to say anything that's considered profiling based on religion or country of origin, that we let spies from Iran and Pakistan into the White House. This is what the FBI is now. This is what our intelligence agencies are now. The FBI is headed by Chris Wray. He was the one who claimed after the January 6th riots that white supremacy is the biggest domestic terror threat this country faces. Do you believe that? You believe that white supremacy is our biggest domestic threat? Or the Iranian terrorists that are in the White House? Who could believe that? Of course, Donald Trump appointed Chris Ray. Donald Trump didn't fire Chris Ray, which is just another genius Trump hiring move. He hires somebody who's got an agenda completely the opposite of his, then acts shocked that he gets stabbed in the back, and then, of course, doesn't fire him. Anyway, at the same time as the two Muslims were uh, with the Iranian Pakistani ties were infiltrating the White House and the vice president's residence, Jill Biden. There was a jury verdict in Michigan of some ironic note, I would say. Four men were charged with conspiring to kidnap Michigan's leftist governor, Gretchen Whitmer. They were found either not guilty, two of the four, or the jury was hung on all charges for the other two. No convictions after a three-week trial. It was uh, just a bunch of, you know, the truth is, fat drunks discussing online about how much they hated the governor and what they wanted to do to her, including making her stand trial for treason. The hillbillies wanted to put her on trial, very much like the January 6th rhetoric which caused those riots uh, by the Capitol. So the FBI, instead of, you know, looking out for the Iranian and Pakistani uh, terrorists, uh, spies that are in their midst, they infiltrated this hillbilly group and, uh, reported that one of the group told him that he wanted to tie Whitmer, who he called the tyrant, to a table and pose for a photo with her like they had performed, quote, the biggest drug bust. I mean, imagine how scary that is for the Republic, that a bunch of fat, drunk hillbillies are talking online about wanting to kidnap a Democratic governor of Michigan. So the FBI spent months infiltrating and taping the small group of rednecks. The defense claimed that they were entrapped, meaning that in order uh, for the entrapment defense to work in front of the jury, the jury would have to believe that the undercover FBI agents persuaded or pressured the men into agreeing to this plot and that the defendants had no predisposition to commit such a crime until after the FBI came into the picture. It's a tough defense, but it worked in this case. And the defense is basically admitting that they did it, but they're saying, if not for the FBI, we wouldn't have done it. And as I said, it worked. And in the summation of one of the defense lawyers, the lawyer said, quote, I am ashamed of the behavior of the leading law enforcement agency in the United States. I can't really disagree with them on that one. And if it could possibly get more humiliating for the government, the FBI agent who was the lead investigator in this case pleaded no contest uh, last week to aggravated assault changing excuse me aggravated assault charges which stemmed from allegations that he bashed his wife's head into a nightstand last year after returning home from a swingers party which apparently she didn't enjoy that much and that was just 
some of the disgusting behavior from the FBI involved just in that the Michigan Governor Whitmer kidnapping case. Another FBI agent on the case was the owner of a cybersecurity firm, which was leaking information about the kidnapping case before it got charged on Twitter. I mean, saying, I've got news. This is what's going to go down. It's one of the FBI agents on the case thinking that he's going to get away with it. And this is what the FBI does. I mean, this happens in almost every case I'm involved in. The FBI is engaging either in perjury or some kind of misconduct. And, you know, everybody just looks the other way. I mean, we don't, but we don't have any power as defense lawyers. The bottom line, and, and this is really what I'm trying to get to, the bottom line is that instead of safeguarding the White House, the president, the vice president, the Secret Service from Iranian terrorists, the FBI is entrapping right-wing hillbillies. And it, it's incredible to me. This is what we're worried about. And we heard recently that 15 months after the January 6th riots, that the Department of Justice is adding 131 more prosecutors to work on these cases. That's 15 months later after they started, 131 more prosecutors. They've already brought hundreds of cases, arrested so many people. So many people are rotting in prison with minor crimes. I have defendants charged who, who didn't get bail. I have defendants charged with murder who I've gotten out on bail. The alleged boss of the Colombo crime family who I represent is out on bail in his case. But January 6th defendants who, you know, walked into the Capitol and like made off with a podium, well, they're facing maybe like a year, maybe two in prison. They're sitting in bail, in jail without bail. You know, it used to be that not that long ago, the FBI was pretty much hardcore conservative and, and so were federal prosecutors. They're not anymore in neither group. And I'm not referring to social... Uh, conservatism, because I'm not a social conservative. I mean, I'm pro-choice. I'm for gay marriage. I mean, I'm, I'm for pretty much whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody else. I'm talking about issues of national defense. I'm talking about issues of law enforcement. The FBI, federal agents, it's not so easy to find guys that are, you know, hawks on stuff like that. They're mostly lefties now. The prosecutors are horrendous. Nearly every federal prosecutor that I know in New York is a lefty, is a flaming lefty. One of them just quit the office, a federal prosecutor, and he's running for Congress now in California as a as Republican. I saw it, I read about it, and I sent him money. I donated, and he was shocked, I think, because I'm like his natural enemy, called me up on my cell and asked me, you know, you donated. I'm, I'm shocked. And I said, look, dude, uh, his, his name was Matt Jacobs in California. I said, you're always honest with me. I appreciate your politics now. And again, I'm not like a hardcore Republican, but I told him I appreciate your, uh, your politics. I appreciated how honest you were, and I'm happy to give you the money. Now the FBI, the DOJ, they're simply tools of the Democratic Party. All we hear from the FBI is they want equality and equal rights and trans rights amongst their uh, uh, rank and file. We saw many of them on uh, bended knee during a Black Lives Matter protest in D.C. in 2020, BLM uh, has pretty much been revealed as an utter fraud. They amass huge donations from liberal white guilters, from corporations that are paying protection money in order to avoid being protested by BLM. And little to none of the money goes to charity. It just ends up in real estate purchases, apparently, for the leaders of Black Lives Matter. Other money just sitting in a bank account. And the FBI is on their knees for them. I mean, literally on their knees. And it's just disgraceful. And of course, they're not going after these people and, and indicting them. 
because they don't want to be uh, accused as being racist. And as I said on the radio in 2008, when Obama was running for the presidency, and keep in mind, I was a Democrat for decades as an adult, the country will not be recognizable in 20 years. I mean, you could see it if you were objective and you could see what Obama, where he came from. In 2008, I said, the country will not be recognizable in 20 years. And we're six years away from that. And I can barely recognize what it's become now. And Iran is laughing at us, laughing at us. Look what they've done to us while we are begging them to come back to the table on the nukes deal. They, they won't even agree to stop their terrorism all over the globe and the killing of our allies and their killing of Americans. They're infiltrating our secret service now. And we're still begging them for this deal. We should have just said, listen, we're done with it. Enough. We've had enough of you. We're using all our assets, on the other hand, to go after, who is it? Hillbillies. Hillbillies. We're using all our tax money to focus on domestic terrorism from supposed white hate groups instead of the real dangers to our country, which is radical Islam and China. China. It's crazy. Anyway. Another crazy story this week, this one might be wilder than any of them, is Donald Trump endorses Dr. Oz. He's the Hollywood liberal, the TV doctor. He endorsed him for the Republican uh, spot in the primary in the Pennsylvania Senate race. This has to be the most bizarre endorsement ever. President MAGA endorsed the guy who supported, let me just start, supported the red flag laws for guns. Red flag laws allow the government to confiscate guns from individuals without any kind of proof of malicious intent. Police or family members or even friends of the gun owner can petition a state court to order the temporary removal of firearms from a person who they believe present a possible danger to others or themselves. A judge ends up making the determination to issue the order based on statements and actions made by the gun owner in question, but no proof that he actually did anything wrong. And whether you're for or against the red flag laws isn't, I'm not here to, to argue that. I'm here to say that President MAGA, who supposedly is all about Second Amendment, would endorse someone who is a gun grabber. It's not very Second Amendment to be a gun grabber, is it? Here's another thing that Dr. Oz said. It's time we treat shootings as a public health problem. Contact your congressperson today to, man, to demand that they fund the CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, to comprehensively study gun violence. The CDC? They're going to study gun violence? They can't even get their act together on an actual health issue, a disease issue, COVID. And Dr. Oz wants them to study gun violence. Does that sound MAGA to you? doesn't. There's more about Dr. Oz. I'm going to, it keeps getting worse. So gird your loins. Dr. Oz said, quote, black Americans age 18 to 49 are two times more likely to die from heart disease than white Americans, according to the CDC. Experts believe there are multiple reasons for this, but systemic racism is a major factor. Systemic racism. So it's not food choices bad personal habits, lack of exercise. It's racism that's giving black Americans clogged arteries. They're eating a lot of racism along with a lot of butter, I guess. I don't know. Not very MAGA is my point. President Trump is endorsing that kind of slop. 
On immigration, Dr. Oz has been very clear that even during the worst parts of COVID, immigration should continue. That's what he said. He was born in Cleveland. His parents are Turkish. And yet today, while he's running for the Senate, he's a dual citizen of America and Turkey. And that bothers me. You're running for Senate in America and you're a citizen of Turkey? Turkey is a Muslim terror state. They are a Muslim terror state. I don't want to hear that Turkey is our ally. They're not. And that they're in NATO. They are, but that was decades ago. That was well before they were taken over by a Muslim terrorist dictator, Erdogan, who supports numerous Muslim terror groups, including ones that are Turkish. He even protects Hamas inside Turkey. And we have a guy who's a Turkish citizen, a joint citizen, a dual citizen running for the Senate in America and is endorsed by MAGA? On abortion, 2019, Mehmet Oz, he talked about how dangerous outlawing abortion would be. Well, guess what? Three years later, he's okay now with Roe versus Wade being overturned. He's full of shit. That's what he is. How about this from Dr. Oz? In February of 2010, in one of his shows, and this is 12 years ago, he featured transgender children and their families. I mean, this guy was into transgenders before it was a thing. In the introductory segment of the show, Dr. Oz hosted two transgender children and their families to discuss their process of realizing and embracing their respective identities. Eight-year-old Josie and her mother, Vanessa, talked about first learning the word transgender and how uh, drastically Josie's life improved once she stopped being forced into a masculine identity that did not fit her. Next, 15-year-old Isaac and his parents, Arturo and Monica, explained how they decided that taking hormone blockers and undergoing a double mastectomy would be best for their little girl, who now was a little boy. At 15, Dr. Oz encouraged the 15-year-old girl to undergo a double mastectomy because she thought she might be a boy. At 15! Permanent damage at 15, butchering her body. Don't 15-year-olds ever get confused about their sexuality? Now, listen, I don't have a problem with any of this stuff, but not at 15. You can't let 15-year-old kids chop off their cans. You can't do it. You got to let them be kids. Let them see, let them develop on their own, figure out down the line what they want to do. At 15, Dr. Oz did this 12 years ago. He's not just liberal. He's crazy far left. He started his TV career being on Oprah Winfrey's show. And this is the idiocy of Trump. And I have been saying this since 2016, and I'm not a never-Trumper. This is the idiocy of the base. Trump described Oz, Dr. Oz, as brilliant and well-known. I have known Dr. Oz for many years, as have many others, even if only through his very successful television show. He has lived with us through the screen and has always been popular, respected, and smart. Okay, so this fucking guy is popular and well-known. And that's what matters to Trump? Not the fact that he's a crazed far-left gun grabber? I mean, Jesus Christ. This is what Trump is endorsing? MAGA, you're not this dumb, are you? He's been on TV, so he's going to be a great senator. What I'll say to MAGA country, whoever's listening, two words, Ron 
DeSantis. Everything that Trump pretends he is, Ron DeSantis is. Again, it's clear as a bell. I don't know how you could be for Trump and not vomit into buckets after that endorsement of Dr. Oz yesterday. And the final insane story for the day, this one I'm getting a little bit of uh, enjoyment out of. Hong Kong, part of China, is running amok with COVID. The communists, they, they locked it down. And they didn't mess around. They really locked it down. You cannot leave your home to get food. Very, very difficult to get deliveries. This has been going on for weeks now, for over two weeks. They're welding doors shut so that people can't get out of their homes. Until just the other day, if a baby got COVID, they come and test you all the time. If a baby got COVID, they took the baby away from the parents and put them in a makeshift camp with portable toilets and no running water. People are throwing themselves out of windows, committing suicide. If you get COVID, they come and they kill your pets. That's what's going on in China right now. It sounds insane. You're, you're listening to this. And you're thinking, this guy's crazy. This isn't true. It's true. Tens of millions of Hong Kong residents and the surrounding areas are under strict lockdown. Residents, you can find it on the internet, are just opening up their windows and screaming. Just screaming. They're showing their empty refrigerators. They have no food. This is all over. You can see this. As I said, they're throwing themselves out of windows. If you leave your apartment, they'll come and they'll beat you into submission and they'll take you away. It's true. They want COVID down to zero. Not a single person with COVID is what they want, even though there's such a ridiculously high percentage of survival from COVID nowadays. And it's funny in a way. They want massive lockdowns and restrictions, the communists in China, very similar to the leftists in America who also want lockdowns and, and massive restrictions. They think pretty similarly on how to handle COVID. Lucky for us in America, full-blown communism can't be implemented, despite, I would suggest respectfully, that many Democrats wish it could. You've got that Bernie Sanders. You've got that Rashida Tlaib. You got that Ilhan Omar, you got that, uh, what's her name, AOC, that Alexandra Jimenez Cortez Ocasio. They all want it. Anyway, I'm thrilled that China is suffering from COVID. They created COVID, they unleashed it on the world. They should suffer and they should have their economy destroyed as well. They stole years from Americans and the rest of the world. They stole our money, they stole our lives. They should suffer the same fate. It's fair. It's fair. And to the Chinese who are being locked down in their tiny apartments, having their children taken away from them, their pets killed, either realize that communism doesn't work and rise up and destroy your tormentors or suffer. My concern in all this is just the innocent animals that are being harmed. That's it. The rest of the communists, I don't care. I don't give a damn about. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks for joining me this week. If you have any questions, you can find me on beyondthelegallimit.com. Send me an email, and you can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, iHeartRadio. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in.